Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. After the Germans broke the code used by American diplomatic missions, they were able to gain detailed information about Allied positions in North Africa, sometimes just a few hours after they had been written. But Allied forces had broken Enigma, the German code, and made military decisions based on that secret information. Israeli historian and journalist Gershom Gorenberg has been covering Middle East affairs for many years. In his new book, he tells the story of that race for information during World War II and the battle of cryptographers on both sides of it. The book, War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East is published by Public Affairs, and I'm very pleased that it brings Gershom Gorenberg to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Isn't this book something of a departure from the other books you've written, which are mostly about Israeli history? Well, I went a few years further back to look into what led up to the events that I've covered in my other books and uh, found some really, really exciting stories and unexpected stories about the period just before Israel came into existence. And you you say that a conversation you had with a friend sparked your interest in this lesser-known aspect of World War II? Because although the major World War II battles in Europe and in the Pacific are well-known, very little attention has been paid to what happened in the Middle East. Yeah, and that's sort of amazing when you think about it, because fully for half the war, uh, the major front between the British and the Germans, and then afterwards between the Allies and the Germans and Italians, was in fact the Middle East. That's where the war was going on for three years. And it was overshadowed afterwards by D-Day and the invasion of Germany. But for, as I said, half the war, the battle was here in the Middle East. In the 1940s, was there a way to communicate quickly between headquarters and, and the field other than by radio? No, the only way that you could, uh, there was this revolution in warfare, of course, rapid warfare, what the Germans called Blitzkrieg. Um, And that revolution depended on one kind of machine, the tank, but it also depended on another kind of machine, radio, to connect uh, the commanders and the field. And that made it essential to be able to encrypt what you were sending, because otherwise you were shouting out your plans to the world. So that brought in a third kind of machine, an encryption machine, a cipher machine. And the most famous of those, of course, was the German machine Enigma, uh, which the Germans had absolute trust in as being perfect encryption, end-to-end encryption that will never be broken, as we would say today. Uh, Little did they know that first the Poles and then the British uh, succeeded in breaking their encryption and were were reading it regularly through the war. In fact, the Poles had uh, had broken it much earlier, right? 1932, uh, Marian Yevsky? Right. Uh, it, people who have seen uh, the movie The Imitation Game may have this impression that that Breaking Enigma was a one-man show by the brilliant Alan Turing in, in Britain. And, and Turing did play a, a really major part in, in uh, the Breaking of Enigma. But the story actually began in Poland in 1932 when this young, completely anonymous mathematician named Marian Uryuski was, was given the job of breaking the unbreakable code. And in a matter of, 
a couple of months, came up with the equations that allowed him to figure out how to break into Enigma. His accomplishment was so amazing that even when he turned the secrets over to the British on the eve of the war, the best of the British codebreakers didn't believe that he could have possibly done this. They assumed that he must have received a stolen Enigma machine, (laughs) stolen Enigma settings, because it was mathematically impossible to do it. But Ryuski, in fact, did. And Ryuski uh, relied on mathematical techniques rather than linguistic patterns, uh, the sorts of things that were usually used to break codes. How did he gain that insight? That's right. Well, he was uh, a he was studying for his master's degree in math when he was recruited by the Polish Cipher Bureau. Uh, one of his fields was the mathematics of permutations of different combinations, and he realized. <clears throat> unlike anybody else, that this could be applied to figuring out how Enigma worked. Uh, the, the, the big trick with Enigma was you had to know how it was wired inside, and the number which expressed the possible ways of wiring Enigma is a 5 followed by 92 zeros. It's just an astronomic <laughs> wow. figure. And therefore, everybody thought, you know, they thought that for a code breaker to get through this, they'd have to try all of those combinations. But he came up with equations which allowed him to figure out which, which combination was the correct one. Uh, it's an incredible feat and one which he received virtually no recognition for in his lifetime yeah. because the whole thing was so secret. Uh, didn't the Poles build replicas of German machines in Warsaw for the Polish secret service? This is long, well before the beginning of World War II. Why didn't Germany realize that Enigma had been broken? Uh, well, I would say there were two reasons. Before the war, they didn't have a clue because nobody was acting on it yet, right? Mm-hmm. They were, the Poles were getting this information, but there were no battles going on, so there was no way to apply it. But more importantly, and this was true even during the war when the, when the British were breaking more and more Enigma messages, there was this absolute hubristic confidence in Enigma absolute certainty in the technology that made it impossible to believe that anybody could possibly be breaking it, which I think is a warning for everybody today who says we have perfect encryption on this or we have perfect encryption on that. Even when the Germans saw clues that somehow or another the British were getting their information, they always came up with an explanation to themselves of it was being some other source than Enigma. Uh, their confidence blinded them. How much of World War II intelligence was based on Ryevsky's work? Uh, and why, and, well, and I know the, the question, the obvious question is, why haven't uh, they received any recog- any of the recognition that they deserve? If you found out about it, other people must have found out about it. Well, first of all, this was not the only intelligence breakthrough, but it may have been the most significant one. The only thing which came close to matching it was the American breakthrough of a very similar kind of Japanese uh, encryption machine. Um, In the case of the British, what happened was, first of all, they they went to incredible efforts to keep it secret. Uh, Just to give you one example, when they 
receive certain information about where a German unit or a German ship was going to be, they'd send out a reconnaissance plane to that spot so that the enemy would think that the plane spotted them and not know that it was the broken code. Uh, and everybody who came to work at Bletchley Park, the location of the, uh, of the British uh, uh, Signal Intelligence Service, was told that they had to keep the secret, that they would be punished severely if they uttered a word of it. Some people were told that they would be shot if they uttered a word of it. There was this very deep sense of secrecy. At the end of the war... Everybody who knew about Enigma was told, you may not disclose this for the rest of your life. And the reason for that psychologically is fascinating. The British command said, after World War I, the Germans didn't believe that they'd been beaten on the battlefield. They came up with, you know, these conspiracy theories, the stab in the back theory that they'd somehow been betrayed. And the British leadership said, if we want to make sure that the Germans don't make a third try, they have to believe that they were beaten completely on the battlefield. So the intelligence breakthrough must never be, uh, must never be revealed. And that kept it under wraps for many, many years. My guest on today's Let It Lopate at Large is Gershom Gorenberg. Uh, we're talking about uh, his book, War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East. It's published by Public Affairs. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And I'm sure many of my listeners are familiar with uh, World War II code breaking through the movie, The Imitation Game. Uh, you're saying that uh, it's filled with historical inaccuracies. Is uh, Alan Turing given too much credit? Well, he deserves a tremendous amount of credit. But as I said, it was not a one-man show. I mean, I think that that's a, um, a device in cinema is to focus, you know, on the one brave man against the world. Uh, so first of all, Turing's work was built upon what these forgotten Poles accomplished before the war. Uh, he worked with other brilliant code breakers at Lexi Park, especially another mathematician named Gordon Welchman, uh, who actually improved on his design for the machine that broke Enigma. And the other thing that... <clears throat> and there was also Margaret's think, story. Right. So the, here's the next, the next piece of it. You've decoded the message. Now you have to make sense of it. Because even when they got decoded messages, they were written in a way that was, you know, to use the classic word telegraphic, that was understood by people who were in the same army, but might not be understood by somebody else. And at a crucial point in the war, in April of 1942, they started getting these messages from North Africa, quoting, saying the, the Germans were quoting their own intelligence source, who they kept referring to as the good source, who was giving them information straight from the top ranks of the British army in Cairo, British positions, plans, weaknesses, and the job of figuring out who the good source was, as it turned out, as I dug into the archives, was assigned to a 24-year-old woman named Margaret Story, mm. uh, about whom very, very little was recorded. It took me many, many months to find people who had known her and learn a little bit about who Margaret's story was, the story of story. Uh, she was a incredibly brilliant young woman. Everybody who I talked to had known her had a different 
uh, description of how amazingly brilliant she was. Uh, she also spoke nine languages, and she was given these messages and told to figure out what the source was. And in fact, they managed to figure out what the source in Cairo was and to silence it on the very eve of one of the most important battles in World War II, the Battle of El Alamein, which determined mm. the fate of the Middle East in July of, of 1942. And they cut off German intelligence. And the Germans' uh, most famous general, Erwin Rommel, mm. who was supposedly had a sixth sense about what the British were planning, his, his ESP about what the British were planning was actually great intelligence. And suddenly he was blinded. His source was cut off. He had no idea what the British were planning. He had no idea how they were going to defend Egypt. And he was uh, blocked and essentially stranded in the desert by this suddenly re reversal in, in the secret intelligence battle. Ronald was called the Desert Fox. Uh, and he was well-liked by Hitler, but also respected by the British as a worthy opponent. Did he deserve the reputation as a military genius? And also as the acceptable think, face of German militarism, the good German who stood apart from the Nazi regime? I think that that mythology created after the war has two deep flaws in it. One is uh, in terms of his military genius. First of all, as I said, uh, his supposed uh, ability to his intuition about uh, about British plans, about Allied plans, was really based on intelligence. And when he lost that intelligence, he suddenly became much less brilliant. He he also made critical strategic errors. In particular, he didn't pay enough attention to getting supplies to his forces in the desert. And in desert war, where where even water had to be transported hundreds of miles to the front. This was a, uh, a fatal error in his planning. The second thing is that Rommel was no uh, pure-minded patriot. He worshipped Hitler uh, from the time that Hitler came to power. He was Hitler's favorite, and he enjoyed that position. And in fact, as he prepared to what he thought he was going to conquer Egypt and then the rest of the Middle East, he was assigned a SS commander who was in charge of the Einsatzkommando, the mobile killing squad, which was supposed to be responsible for the genocide of Jews in Egypt and in Palestine and throughout the Middle East. Uh, and the only reason that that, uh, that that Einsatzkommando, that that mobile killing squad did not go into action is that Rommel was defeated at El Alamein. Uh, so the reputation, the post-war reputation is quite distant from the reality of, of Erwin Rommel. And that's one of the things that I set out to explain in War of Shadows. Now, you mentioned that he was getting uh, information as well. Uh, the, so uh, the Allied codes had been stolen as well. Is that uh, what happened in the uh, when uh, cipher tables and, and uh, military code books were stolen from a consul's office in Rome in September 1941? Uh, yeah, so... Uh, so the Italians play a role in this whole story as well. Right. The Italians, there's a fascinating... Well, the British had an expression, the British codebreakers had an expression that the best form of, of code breaking is a pinch, is a theft. 
Mm-hmm. It saves you a lot of time if instead of having to figure out how your enemy's code works, you can just steal it. Uh, the Italians were not the best code breakers in the world. They didn't have enough people devoted to it. They were skilled but understaffed. But they happened to be very, very good safe crackers. And, in fact, on the eve of the war, the head of, uh, of Italy's so-called uh, penetration squad, P-squad, in, in Rome was virtually the maitre d' of, 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 of Rome. He had keys to nearly every embassy in Rome. He walked in and out of embassies at night, opened their safes, removed documents, including code books. They would be quickly spirited off to a uh, to an intelligence photo workshop um, hidden in a nondescript depart, uh, uh, apartment in a working class neighborhood of, of, of Rome, photographed within an hour or two, and then the books and the documents would be placed back in the safe exactly in the position that they had been before, and nobody was the wiser. It wasn't until the... Uh, until Rome was conquered by the Allies in 1944, and MI6, the British intelligence service, got the chance to start interrogating Italian intelligence people that they had any idea of what was going on there before and during the war. So based on that theft, wasn't Germany able to read the reports of Bonnerfeller as a U.S. military attache in Cairo? And what kind of information did they obtain from his radiograms? Well, Fellers was the uh, was the American military attaché in Cairo. He was during this period uh, between 1940 and 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 1942, when American troops had not yet gone into battle against Germany or Italy. Sellers was, in many ways, the American closest to the battlefront. He had been sent to Cairo as, as America's military representative in 1940. Uh, he had incredible access to the British. And his job was re- to report back to the War Department in Washington everything that was going on, uh, the quality of the weapons, the quality of British fighting, because all of that information would help America prepare to go to war. Because the U.S. Uh, hadn't entered the war yet. Right. When Fellers arrived there in the fall of 1940, America was not at war and was firmly determined not to go to war at that stage. And and one of the interesting ironies is, if anybody, Fellers was particularly determined. Fellers was a close friend of Charles Lindbergh, the famous leader of the isolationist camp in America. But when he got to, uh, to Cairo, things looked different when you were looking at the war, and he rapidly became a supporter of America going to war and, in fact, of defending the Middle East. Uh, and he, his, he arrived as one person to do this observation job. Very quickly, the War Department started sending him assistance. His, his office in, in, in Cairo in a mansion in a, in a luxurious part of, of, uh, of, of Cairo grew to 24 people. He had all sorts of assistants who were out there observing the battle, and he was radioing this information back to Washington, which was had a, a strong effect on uh, uh, America war planning. In fact, he was one of the people who convinced uh, President Roosevelt in the summer of 1942 that the first place 
that the United States should go into battle on the Western Front was by invading North Africa, invading Morocco and Algeria in uh, November of 1942. A part of the war which has been strangely forgotten, there's some kind of amnesia about it in, in American memory of the war. Did the Americans ever discover the source of the leaks? Uh, well, there's documents in American archives that indicate that uh, that they got this information from MI6 either at the end of the war or uh, at, actually in the last months of the war. It's not clear to me whether that information ever reached uh, Sellers' direct commanders, certainly not him. Um, one of the things about intelligence, one of the things that's fascinating about doing this work is that intelligence units obviously are extremely compartmentalized. So people don't necessarily know what's going on in, in other branches of intelligence. So MI6 could report this information to one part of American intelligence without it necessarily reaching another part. And the, the excitement of researching this today when decades after the war, some of these papers have finally been declassified and other papers I found in the addicts of, of the children and grandchildren of people who've been involved and wasn't even in the official archives, is that it's actually possible to see this whole story from more perspectives than the people who were involved in it themselves. You mentioned that it was uh, difficult to get supplies to Rommel's army. Um, why did he decide to advance into Egypt in 1942? Well, this is fascinating. He uh, he had launched a an the the British were occupying part of Libya, which was an Italian colony. His job was to defend Libya. Uh, Rama was a deep believer in the idea that the best defense is a good offense. He attacked. He took the small, strategically important port of Tobruk at the end of June, uh, 1942. As a matter of fact, the news that Tobruk had fallen reached Winston Churchill when he was sitting in the Oval Office with FDR in a radiogram from Bonnerfellers in Cairo. Uh, and he was supposed to advance to the Egyptian border and, and stop there. But the information that he received from Cairo, this intelligence information, told him that the British Army was in disarray and said, if you want to, if it was phrased in the third person, if Rama wants to conquer the Nile Delta, meaning Alexandria and Cairo, the cities of Egypt, this is the moment for him to do so. So Rommel, who had the personality of a compulsive gambler in any case, now he's a compulsive gambler who's reading the other guy's cards. And he says, fantastic. This is exactly what I want to do. And he plunges into Egypt. His assumption and his goal was to reach the port of Alexandria where supplies could reach him by sea. Uh, and as he charged forward, he lost his intelligence source. And when he reached El Alamein, where the British had created their defenses, he was not ready for those defenses. El Alamein was near 60 miles from Alexandria, and he was blocked there, which meant that all of his supplies had to continue reaching him by truck hundreds, from hundreds of miles away uh, in Libyan ports. Um, you know, if you wanted to send two gallons of gasoline for a tank if you put two gallons of gasoline on a truck for a tank at El Alamein, the truck would have to burn one gallon of that just to get it to El Alamein, and only one gallon would be left for the 
for the tanks. So supplies became a huge problem. Uh, and he was really stuck there. He was really stranded there after he failed to break through. And let's leave it there for a moment. Um, and we will continue this conversation here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org in just a few moments. music from the imitation game before we get back to my conversation with Gershom Gorenberg I need to take a couple of minutes to ask you to consider contributing to the station to help us get back to our on our feet after this pandemic has made our financial situation extremely difficult and that's why we're asking everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopate at large and is financially able to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep us coming to you live on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And one great way to support the station without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. They're, they're listeners who make a tax-deductible contribution of $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on the show. And I'm pleased to announce that anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large by calling 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Or if they go online to give to WBAI.org, they'll receive a free copy of my guest Gershom Gorenberg's book, War of Shadows, Code Breakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East as our way of saying thanks for being one of the listeners who support this show. In fact, you're our only source of support because WBAI doesn't take grant money or corporate sponsorships of any kind. So whatever level you feel comfortable contributing at, the important thing is that you step up right now to give us that support so we can continue bringing you these deep dive, long form interviews on topics we hope will be of interest to you. Again, why not make that call today? 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the show, thanks. And I'll return now to Gershom Gorenberg, who has written a number of books, but the one we're discussing is War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East. It's published by Public Affairs. So uh, Rommel decides to, to uh, go into, well, into Egypt and then into the Middle East to get oil. Um, were the Allies prepared for that? Well, the, his goal, in fact, was uh, he had several goals here. His goal was to conquer the entire Middle East. He hoped to reach the oil fields in Iraq. One of the ironies of the situation is that nobody knew yet that there was oil in Libya. Uh, the Germans had a serious fuel problem. The only oil fields available to them at that time were in Romania. So by reaching Iraq, they hoped to both get the fuel they lacked and to cut off part of the British supply. And the other thing was that at this point in the war, they were hoping that the Japanese could link up with them through the Indian Ocean. 
uh, and to create a direct connection that they never had during the war. So from many strategic viewpoints, the idea of conquering the Middle East was a critical goal for them at that point, and Rommel was certain that he could achieve it. It was the intelligence failure. It was the it was the blocking of his crucial intelligence information uh, at at the precise moment when he was on the verge of conquering the Middle East that that foiled that plan, that prevented taking the oil fields of Iraq, that prevented conquering Egypt. Uh, by the way, conquering Egypt would also supply the Germans with something else they were lacking, which seems very pedestrian, but was important, which was cotton to make their uniforms with. Uh, and it also prevented the Nazi genocide machine from reaching most of the of the Middle East. So in each of these respects, the, the defeat was absolutely critical. There were three battles in World War II uh, in the space of a few months that were the turning points on each of the fronts that ended the Axis advance. One of them was the Battle of Midway in the Pacific. One was Stalingrad in Russia. And the third was El Alamein in the desert of Egypt. And the defeat there, although only a handful of people knew it at the time, was extremely dependent on breaking the supposedly unbreakable encryption that the Nazis used in their uh, radio messages. And so what preparations were, were made in Palestine to defend against or to accommodate a German invasion of Palestine? Well, it, the the British had set up uh, the year before a line of defense, ironically facing north, because in the early uh, in the early part of the war, the British were most afraid of a German invasion through Turkey and Syria into the Middle East. So. To this day, you can go into the hills, into the, the mountains above the city of Haifa and see gun emplacements and trenches that were built by the British. And they're facing north, which in the end was the opposite direction from which uh, Rama was coming. The second thing that they did when it really became obvious that Palestine was in, in danger of being conquered is that they began one arm of the British military, another secret agency known as the Special Operations Executive. The Special Operations Executive uh, was the British agency responsible for training partisans, guerrillas, resistance behind the line in, in Nazi-occupied lands. And they began training Jews in Palestine to be partisans who would fight the Nazis after Palestine was conquered. They set up a a small camp uh, in, in uh, a place called Mishmar Emek in the northern part of what's today Israel, and they trained several hundred uh, young men and women to, to be guerrilla fighters, to be partisans, uh, and, and fight the Nazis once the expected con conquest took place. So that was another one of their of their preparations for the possibility of a, of, a, of a German conquest of the Middle East. Did the Germans have any allies in the Arab world? The, the uh, Germans had supporters in the Allied world. Uh, in fact, in 1941, a pro-German coup took place in Iraq, and for two months, Iraq was ruled by a essentially a junta, a pro-German junta, uh, the British sent a force into Iraq and managed to uh, to retake Iraq from this pro-German force. 
uh, actually right before the British entered Baghdad, uh, the supporters of the, the pro-Axis supporters of, of this coup went on a rampage against the Jewish community of Baghdad. Uh, in 1941, when this took place, Baghdad was one-sixth Jewish. That is to say, Baghdad of 1941 was more or less as Jewish as New York is today, and hundreds of Jews were killed by the mob before the the British army entered Baghdad. In Egypt, there was particular support for the Axis among junior officers of the Egyptian army, including such people as Gamal Abdel Nasser and Anwar al-Sadat. And in fact, Sadat himself was arrested in 1942 for helping German spies in Cairo. And there's a tremendous irony here because I, mean, I actually found this document. The, the British ambassador in Cairo said, if this man has been giving information to the enemy, he should be shot. Well, Sadat wasn't shot. He and Nasser, uh, 10 years later, led the revolution that displaced the king and became the rulers of, of Egypt. And the same Sadat that uh, the British ambassador wanted uh, wanted shot for his pro-Axis activities, eventually became the man who led Egypt to make peace with Israel, uh, a sign that you can't always predict the later chapters of a man's life from the early chapters. Well, history has a way of uh, forcing people's hands. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> let's get back to um, the British. They established uh, the Government Code and Cipher School at Bletchley Park, which was, what, a vast Victorian estate? How many people worked there? Well, at the beginning of the war, there were about 100 people working there, maybe a little bit more, not just on the Enigma problem, but all of the access uh, uh, codes and ciphers. The... The agency itself grew to thousands of people in the course of the war. One of the fascinating things that happened with the British intelligence agency, their signal intelligence agency, their code-breaking agency during the war, is that it essentially became what we would today call a high-tech startup. It started off with a few brilliant academics who knew how to break codes, but very early in the war, they realized that they were getting an industrial-sized flow of, of radio messages from the Germans that they had to break. And they transformed it into a code-breaking industry. Three shifts a day of people working in uh, breaking the code-breaking process into smaller stages with specialists on each stage. It became a code-breaking factory in, in the course of the war, which makes it all the more striking that for many years after the war, none of the people who worked there said a word about it. Thousands because, upon thousands of people worked there. All of them were terrified at the idea of uttering a word. Uh, it, it was a problem if you worked at Bletchley Park, because particularly if you were a man, because the war ended, you were somebody who came from the right class. You know, you'd gone to Oxford or Cambridge. You were expected to have been a combat officer. You went out on a date and... and when asked you what you'd done during the war, and you stuttered. You couldn't talk about it. It looked like you'd been a shirker. Uh, and people kept that secret for decades. And they, they were asked to keep the secret because uh, 
the Allies thought it was important that the Germans believed that they were defeated solely by battles and not by intelligence, as you said earlier? That's right. The, the, uh, at the end of the war, in April 1945, this order went out, again, which I found in the, uh, in the British National Archives, fascinating document which said you may never speak and then it gave several reasons and the first of those reasons were the germans must not know that intelligence played a part in their defeat they must believe that they were defeated purely by force of arms there were a couple of other reasons given and one of the other reasons is if any of any other country finds out that we did this after the war they will become uh, more careful about their security procedures. Obviously, part of what was in mind there was also the Russians. Uh, you know, we don't want people to know that their codes can be broken. Um, in a sense, that fear was a little bit misplaced because we can see to this day that the same things that made Enigma breakable, which is particularly human carelessness, uh, and also the fact that somebody else can look at the problem differently, apply to encryption today. In many ways, the breaking of Enigma uh, is foreshadowed the great hacking episodes of our time, including the recent Russian hacking episode with American computers. A little bit of carelessness is the only opening that good code breakers need to get into a supposedly completely safe uh, computer or code. So if it was considered important to keep the work of the cryptographers secret long after the war was over, how did we wind up with the story of Alan Turing? So the story began to come out in the 70s, and part of the reason that it came out was that there were people who weren't obligated to British rules. A Polish officer found in the Polish archives records of Ryuski in the 70s and published something about it in Polish. A French officer, intelligence officer, who had been involved in connecting the Poles and the British, published uh, something about it in the late 70s. And finally, a former British officer was allowed to publish an extremely inaccurate version of what had happened in England in the late, in the late 70s. And from there, little by little, the story began to come out. But the early versions of what happened were based on memory, as I said, memories of people who worked in compartmentalized departments, and, and they, were, uh, they were not terribly accurate. It was only many years later when, little by little, the British government began declassifying one batch at a time different papers from Bletchley Park that more of the story could be put together. And... Uh, what I did was to go through many of those papers, some of which uh, the clues had not been put together before uh, of, of this story. Uh, and so it was possible today to, to create a more complete picture of what had happened than in the past. And to that, I was able to add American documents. And as I said, documents which weren't in the archives at all, but which had essentially uh, been taken home and stuffed in the attic by by people who were involved in, in the whole story. My guest on London Lopate at Large today is Gershom Gorenberg. His latest book, War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East, published by Public Affairs. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. 
Did the Germans uh, ever uh, figure out that Enigma had been broken? When the news came out, and I, I stress the word news because something 30 or 40 or 70 years old can still be news if you didn't know about it before. This, this is the journalist historian in me, in me emphasizing this. News can be newly found out. Well, when the news came out in the, in the late 70s that Enigma had been broken, Germans who had been using it were dumbfounded and at first simply refused to believe that it was possible. Their code was unbreakable. They had depended on this. Uh, it's very difficult for people to accept that their creation wasn't perfect. Uh, and, I mean, obviously today, historians of the war know <clears throat> in principle that Enigma was b broken. It's still possible, as I've done, to show new aspects of what the implications of that are. But it took the Germans, the, the, the people who had actually served in the war, it was very, very difficult for them to accept that their perfect code had been broken. And again, I, I think that this is very relevant to today because I think that one of the reasons that uh, the kind of hacking affairs that we've seen can take place is that people who are confident that one piece or another of their techno technology is is perfect, might not see where the weaknesses are. A listener writes, did Churchill really allow a northern England city to be bombed, undefended, uh, as to do otherwise uh, would have revealed that uh, they knew that the German, uh, that they knew the Germans' plans otherwise and beforehand? No, this is a popular legend of the war. Uh, I don't know where this legend began, but it, it's not true. What did happen is that during the Battle of Britain in 1940, the British had a couple of different intelligence sources that were giving them information on Luftwaffe plans, on German Air Force plans. But the story that they knew that the city of Coventry was going to be bombed that night and didn't defend it is... Uh, it's another one of those historical legends. We only have a few minutes left, but I was wondering about how computers have changed the work of spying. Are the skills needed for hacking different from the skills of a cryptographer? Look, the technology is, is clearly very, very different. Uh, in today's terms, if you look at how Enigma worked, which was half mechanical, an electromechanical machine compared to a computer chip with a billion transistors in it, you know, what was being done during World War II looks like it's Stone Age. But I think that several aspects of what happened at Bletchley Park, or for that matter, what happened in American code breaking of the Japanese codes, remains completely relevant. One is that the inventor of a particular method of encryption comes up with a theory, uh, an approach to doing it, and may not be able to see that somebody else could approach the problem differently. That's not because the person who invented it is stupid. That's because that's the way human minds work. They tend to close around their, their solutions. That's what happened with Ryusky and Enigma. He looked at the problem differently. The other aspect of it is that our computers, just like their machines, are made for human beings to use. And the security methods 
always involve a contradiction. The more complicated the security methods are in order to prevent somebody from breaking in, the more steps that have to be taken, the more likely it is that people will be careless or take shortcuts. Uh, in the Russian hacking scandal, you know, the company that was apparently, whose, whose computers were apparently hacked at the beginning of it was using a code, uh, a password at one stage that was the name of the company. Well, that's careless. It's simple. It's easy to remember, and it makes it easier for somebody to get in. And in that sense, it's the direct descendant, the great-grandchild, as it were, in technological terms of the mistakes that the Germans were making during the war. Or the Allies, when uh, when secrets were stolen uh, from a uh, an attaché in in Rome, from his desk. That's right. That's right. As because, long as people leave uh, their uh, long, intricate passwords written on unsecured pieces of paper on their desks, won't today's computers remain vulnerable? Exactly. So the Americans came up with a really spectacularly beautiful code. I mean, when I read about this code, I thought that's, that's brilliant. You know, it, it was one that didn't involve a machine and was still really, really difficult to break. And it was stored in a safe in a, in an office that was easily broken into. I so have to leave the it there. Link. Unfortunately, I'm sorry, Gershom. It's been fascinating. I really enjoyed this conversation. Gershom Gorenberg. Likewise. War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East, published by Public Affairs. And uh, that uh, brings us to the end of, of this show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopatedLarge.com. Also, if you'd like to comment on a show or if you just want to say hello or send me a message as, as Jeffrey did a couple of times during this show, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to make one last appeal for your support for the station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep it all going. So please step up and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And if you sign up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate, uh, at large, remember, BAI Buddy, uh, they uh, contribute $10, $15, $20 a month uh, to help us keep going. If you sign up to become a BAI Buddy uh, in the name of this show, you will receive a free copy of War of Shadows, Codebreaker Spies, and The Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East by today's guest, Gershom Gorenberg. Uh, it's a really a fascinating book, so we, so we hope that you will call 516-620-3602 right now or go online to give to WBAI and make that pledge so we can send you this great book. Uh, we are off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Wednesday when Celine Cousteau will discuss her new documentary 
called Tribes on the Edge about the indigenous people of the Amazon and their struggles. We'll see you then.